Welcome to LongTrailPodcast.com, a new series of podcasts about Vermont's Long Trail, the oldest long-distance hiking trail in the United States. We are podcasting from Camp Rough and Tumble in Faston, Vermont, our hiking home in the Green Mountains. I'm Ruff, and my wife, who is also my hiking partner, is Tumble. In today's podcast, I recall my recent hike on the Long Trail with my son, trail name JB, and his 90-pound yellow Labrador retriever named BJ. We hiked three days on the Long Trail North, Hazen's Notch to the Canadian border, and out on Journey's End Trail, a total of 20.4 miles, including side trails. Saturday, June 28, 2008. At practically first light, about 5 a.m. at this time of the year, I had another visit from the furry yellow guy. BJ came over again to check on how I was doing. I petted him again, and he seemed satisfied that I would get up soon. Imagine that, a canine alarm clock. It did not rain overnight, but the skies were cloudy, and I started packing up my camp. When I went over to the shelter with some of my gear, JB was already up. I had enough water for breakfast, so we sat cooked and ate silently at the shelter table while most of the others were sleeping. Moonstruck had already left for the trail. We had planned to be on the trail by 7.30 a.m., and we beat that time by 10 minutes. We quickly hiked up to the Long Trail Junction and turned left, heading north. Today's menu featured lots of peaks, including Bruce, Buchanan, Domi's Dome, Gilpin, and possibly Jay Peak. We headed into what the Long Trail Guide described as, quote, several ravines, unquote, and these low woods settings presented mud pits, viewless woods, and several high rocks to negotiate. Just like long ago, on my second day with Tumble, on our 2003 end-to-end, my right hand cramped badly as I tried to hold my pole. It was very painful. I massaged my hand, and then I tried to shake the cramps out, but to little avail. I carried both poles in my left hand, and eventually the pain and distortion of my hand subsided. Not long after my hand episode, we heard a ripping sound, and JB noticed that the seam on one of BJ's saddlebags was partially ripped, causing the bag to sag sideways. JB was bummed, given that he had just purchased this bag from Petco, and the fit seemed much improved over the pack BJ had used in the past. He even tried to even the load on each side, and asked me to carry BJ's bowl and some bones. For your grand dog. As I strained under the additional Grand Dog's load, we started the ascent of Bruce Peak. It was hot and sticky, and so was I. We hiked along in relative silence, each of us focused only on the next step. My heart started racing, so I slowed a bit to try and calm it down, and also to catch my breath. I began to realize that I was far from the level of fitness I was used to enjoying by the latter third of the summer hiking season. It was still June, and I had been out only eight times this year, a span that included a nearly three-week layoff while Tumble and I were busy with non-hiking activities. When JB called to propose this hike, Tumble and I had hurriedly taken two hikes earlier in the week to test our legs and get them back on the trail. But trail fitness doesn't come quickly, and I knew that I was vulnerable. My plan consisted of taking it slowly, drinking lots of water, and hoping that my body would think it was September. Along the way, we encountered some deep mud pits. 
June had been a cool, wet month, and the thin soil had probably reached its saturation level weeks ago. J.B. and I looked for bypasses, and we usually gingerly stepped along the edges when the thick vegetation would permit it. B.J., on the other hand, seemingly didn't notice the mud and tromped on through. Once, he sunk in all four legs right up to his chest and struggled to wrench himself free while we looked on with apprehension and awe. I imagined dinosaurs attempting to traverse a prehistoric version of the long trail, only to be captured by the mud and become doomed to donate their bones to the bedrock. With this in mind, I hope to avoid ending up as a future display in the Museum of Natural History. Bruce Peak was a steady ascent, and I could feel my calves straining. As we reached the summit area, I began to look for the sign marking the top, but it was missing. It was 9.30 a.m., and we had been out for a little over two hours, so we took off our packs and snacked. B.J. lay down, pack and all, like he was checking into a hotel after a long flight. He didn't even check for chocolates on his pillow before putting his head down. After a five-minute stop, we saddled up and headed north to descend Bruce and then start the climb up Buchanan. B.J. sprang to life, determined not to let J.B. out of his sight. The ferns and other vegetation were thick and grew close to and over the narrow path. I had to use my poles to part the plants so I could get a good view of where to plant my boots. The ups began to get more difficult. Not the angle of ascent, but the physical exertion involved. I started to break the climb down into manageable pieces, continuing up until my heart began racing, stopping to calm it down and catch my breath, then heading up once again. JB was ahead and patiently waited for me during my recovery stops. In the back of my mind began to loom the remaining peaks of the day, and I started to wonder if I was up to them, and if not, what the consequences would be. We reached the top of Buchanan by 10 a.m. The wind was blowing in short gusts, and visibility was limited. We knew that a good view was hidden somewhere out there. In a few short ups and downs, we reached the north side of the summit, which featured a short ladder leaning against a rock with a sign that read, Chet's Lookout, Elevation, 2,900 feet. J.B. kept his pack on and scrambled up the ladder. B.J. stood at the base of the ladder and stood with his front paws on the second rung, of three total, and tried to climb up. There was no way he could climb up, and he finally slipped off awkwardly, nearly injuring himself. J.B. came back down, and we started the deep descent on the north side. There were slippery rocks to butt-slide down, and also some steep gravel-lined inclines that made for tough footing. Of course, everything was wet, and the level of challenge was gnawing near the top of the scale. Finally off Buchanan, we glided through some high ferns and around some more mud pits. Domi's Dome, the next challenge, blocked the northern sky and yet seemed quite distant. As long as I was on fairly level trail, Vermont's definition accepted, I could hike along with little problem. The air was warm and thick with moisture, yet the rain held off. Perhaps it was waiting for us to get closer to the center of its target. I started to suck wind on the climb of Domi's Dome. My breathing became ragged, and I couldn't maintain a steady, even, slow pace, and needed to stop frequently. My right calf started to cramp, and I shifted weight to my left side to relieve it. To make matters worse, I ran out of water, and I knew there were no more stream crossings until we reached Vermont 242 at J Pass, 
As much as I looked forward to this hike and being on the long trail with JB, I admitted to myself that I was no longer having fun. My thoughts slipped over to the negative side as I pondered whether I had the wherewithal to finish the day's mileage. I stumbled to the top of Domi's Dome where JB and BJ were already waiting. After taking note that the summit sign was missing, I leaned over my poles awash in sweat and fatigue. It was only a few minutes past 11 a.m. The summit was a pretty balsam-filled area and we took an extra long break. BJ, still wearing his pack, lay prone on some damp soil and didn't move. The humidity level had moved beyond saturation and was now tantalizingly close to pure water. To reach Jay Pass, we still had to descend the dome and then hike up and over Gilpin. I told JB that Domi had taken it out of me, and we discussed taking a checkpoint at Jay Pass. I told JB that Domi had taken it out of me, and we discussed taking a checkpoint at Jay Pass, where we could refill our water bladders and make a decision about staying at Jay Camp or hiking on over Jay Peak and camping at Laura Woodward Shelter. The climb up Gilpin was more of the same, with JB in the lead and me taking short gulps of turf, stopping to reassemble my anatomy, and then repeating the process. At almost exactly noon, I crested the final bump and joined JB underneath the Gilpin Mountain South Summit sign. He and BJ were sitting on the ground with their packs off. BJ's pack continued to show tears along the seams of now both saddlebags. After a few minutes of satisfying breathing, I decided to head on down the mountain, hoping to get a jump and keep JB from having to wait for me. Although there were some steep drops down rocks, I set a quick pace, and at one point was really moving down the hill. Eventually I heard a sound from behind and above me, and glanced back to see BJ's head take a quick look at me before he turned around and started back up. I waited there for JB to catch up. We kept a steady pace down the mountain and soon began to negotiate the big boulders that comprised the trail on the lower portion. We could hear the sounds of traffic below and reached the road at 12.50 p.m. JB grabbed hold of BJ's collar and we crossed the road and scrambled up the embankment on the other side. The small Atlas shelter was right there alongside the trail and at 10 minutes until 1 we decided to stop for lunch. BJ stretched out on the floor in the back of the small lean-to, and as the cars whipped by below on the highway, JB and I ate in silence. My body was vibrating and sending out rest now signals while I struggled to remember how to chew and swallow. We discussed our next course of action. I offered that we may want to stay at J camp given the way I was feeling. JB clearly wanted to hike on, noting that we still had over seven hours of daylight. We both knew that the weather was closing in and that we may be facing a small window to hike up and over Jay Peak, the 3,858-foot monster that lay ahead. The next shelter north was Laura Woodward, which was 3.1 miles away. JB said that even at a slow pace of a mile an hour or less, we still had plenty of time to make it. I wasn't worried about the time. I was worried about the physical act itself. I finally said that our first priority was to get water, so we decided to hike the two-tenths mile south loop trail to Jay Camp and filter from the stream there. Fortunately, the trail was straight and flat. The stream was running, and we filtered side by side while BJ drank his straight from the source. 
After that, I walked over to the camp and opened the door to look inside. Much to my surprise, the camp was peopleless, but filled with all kinds of equipment and supplies, including bedding and inflated mattresses on all the bunks, foodstuffs, a full bag of charcoal, real plates, and cases of beer. It looked as though someone was living there. At first, I thought this was gear from members of the Long Trail Patrol, whose groups sometimes stay in one location for days while doing trail maintenance. But it sure didn't look like it. There was no room available for any backpackers. I called Tumble to tell her of our progress and location. I still wasn't sure if we would hike on, but I assured her that we would be careful in any event. And that was certainly true. Slow and easy was on the docket from here on out. J.B. and I looked at each other, silently and mutually consenting to go on, and then we shouldered our packs. As we hiked back to the long trail, we talked about how fortunate we were that we hadn't arrived at J. Camp at the end of the day to find a very full facility and have no other place to go. The elevation at the junction was 2,238 feet, which meant that we were facing a climb of 1,600 feet in 1.6 miles. As we started up, my greatest fear was that my muscles would start cramping and I would be unable to go on. Back I went to my climb a little, rest a little routine, and J.B. patiently waited for me, adding words of encouragement. I was used to being the alpha male, preferring to climb than descend, and thrilling to the transition from hardwoods to conifers. What a comedown it was, if I can use the term, to face a physical and mental struggle to keep going, a little bit at a time, carefully pulling my legs up the rocky footholds. At 3 p.m., with about 700 feet of elevation left to go, it started to rain, lightly at first and then steadily, and we stopped to put on our rain gear. J.B. put on his poncho and I donned my rain jacket and put my pack cover over my backpack. With the rain, stronger winds, and increasing elevation, the temperature kept dropping. We reached a balsam-lined area and the trail became nothing but a stack of boulders. I raised my right leg to step up and my right quadriceps seized up, causing me to cry out in pain as I frantically massaged the area. I found myself in a difficult position. I had to keep on going, but wondered if I could. The long trail guide noted that sometimes the J. Peak Summit Station basement was left open for hikers to take refuge, and I reminded J.B. of this. We figured on staying there, and the thought of a nice dry and enclosed place to lay down became my incentive to continue. I decided to shift the load to my other leg by taking the step-ups with my left leg. This approach worked for a while as I, in the lead now with JB and BJ behind me, literally clawed my way up, being oh so careful with every foot placement. Further up I came to a long, steep slab of rock and looked for a place to get a handhold while I boosted myself up. As I lifted my right leg, it seized up and began to spasm. I let go in pain, dropped my poles, and fell across the rock, clutching my quadriceps muscle. I lay there in the rain, waiting for the pain to subside as J.B. approached, helpless to do anything for me. After about five minutes of being intimate with this ingrate of a rock, I stood gingerly and told J.B., Okay, let's give it a try. Say hello to my worst fear. So this was exhaustion, and there was no need to look further. At least I wasn't at somewhere over 3,000 feet of elevation, in the rain, cold, and limited visibility, soaked, 
carrying a heavy pack, my muscles cramping, and with miles to go before I sleep. Oops. I hiked on, not sure how my body was doing it, but not wanting to interrupt it with such an irreverent question. I now broke the climb down into one rock at a time. My legs stayed attached, and soon the upper snow fence and trail were visible through the trees. We climbed over the big water pipes, used for snowmaking, and made our way through the narrow opening in the fence. The wind was gusting, and in the fog we couldn't see more than ten feet. A male hiker approached us and shouted that the summit station was closed due to a cable replacement project, and that active construction vehicles and crews had blocked off the long trail. He said there was no way through, and took off down the trail we had just come up. J.B. and I looked at each other. What now? Standing in the open ski trail, we could see the wall of rock straight ahead, and the lone white blaze reminding us that the long trail refuses no obstacle. I described to him how the trail climbs up the rock face, then traverses west along the rocks to the summit marker just east of the summit station, and then down a set of stairs back to the ski trail. J.B. of purest heart said he would follow the trail and then try to come back down the steps in front of the summit station. Having hiked this section of the trail twice before northbound and once southbound, and given how I was feeling, I chose to follow the ski trail up parallel to the long trail in hopes of somehow getting around the cable work. We agreed to meet by the station. I leaned into the wind and rain and looked back to see the mist swallow J.B. and B.J. as they started up the rock face. I maintained a steady trudge uphill, unable to see more than ten feet ahead, but at least sure of where I was heading. I could hear the sound of heavy equipment, and suddenly a huge yellow caterpillar and several huddled figures wearing construction hats emerged ahead. It was like pure science fiction, the wind howling, the rain pelting down, the engines roaring, and the surreal outlines of faceless human figures moving about. It was Saturday, and we were on top of a 3,800-foot mountain in severe weather conditions. What were these aliens doing here? What was I doing here? I looked to my right, and suddenly a steady stream of bright sparks came right at where I was standing. The workers were apparently using a tool to cut the thick cable, and I was downstream. I quickly lunged forward to get out of the way, and one of the workers glanced over at me and then resumed his task, seemingly unconcerned by my presence. I scurried ahead, stepping over numerous cables and debris lying in the grass. At the summit station I huddled under a set of stairs, directly across from where I hoped J.B. would emerge and surrounded by numerous signs warning that the area and building were closed, and that this was a dangerous keep-out work zone. After about ten anxious minutes of waiting, would J.B. be able to follow the trail? Would he be able to realize that the trail turns south from the summit and comes down the rocks and the wooden steps? Was he okay? Was it a good idea to separate? I looked up at the rock and saw a B.J.'s face and floppy ears peeking down over the side. A minute later, J.B. appeared, and I waved frantically until he saw me, and then I pointed to tell him to head down the stairs. The workmen were clustered near the base of the stairs and had laid some of their tools on the lower steps. J.B. picked his way down carefully and joined me by the side of the building. He said that after he and B.J. had scrambled up the rock face, he had a difficult time following the trail. He added that the wind was howling about 40 miles an hour. He couldn't see very far in front of him, 
His poncho blew right over his head, and at one point he lost the white blazes and had to retrace. He found the stone bench and then continued up towards the summit, but never found the summit marker and also couldn't even see the summit station. He did stop to pick up a nice-looking spoon that he saw lying on the summit rocks. He then made his way over to the top of the stairs and saw me motion for him to come down the steps. I told J.B. that the building was totally blocked off and there was no way we could use it for shelter. We knew then that our only choice was to hike on, down the north side of Jay Peak and on to Laura Woodward. It was about 4.30 p.m., and we had to hike on a steep descent of 1.5 miles to the shelter. Sometimes when you have no choices, no matter how dire the situation, it makes things easier. There was no discussion this time and nothing to decide. Just a couple of nods and off we went with BJ tagging faithfully along. I was familiar with this out in the open section of the trail and led us down the open ski trail. I found the narrow opening in the snow fence where the long trail leaves the grassy area, and while J.B. seemed unsure, he followed me, and we picked up a white blaze as we re-entered the woods. We immediately encountered a plethora of signs warning us that the area ahead on Big J Mountain was closed for restoration due to the illegal trail cutting discovered last winter. We skirted around the signs and also east past a heavy snow fence, which intruded into the long trail. Mama Mia, whatever happened to that long trail of my dreams? This was more like a war zone. And then we headed down, and I do mean down, over frequent and steep, slimy rocks surrounded by Vermont's finest mud and slippery roots. I was glad to be using a different set of muscles than those on our climb up, but this was hard work. We stayed totally focused, exchanging not one word as we inched our way down, after 15 minutes, we paused while J.B. adjusted his pack. B.J. immediately squeezed through the small balsams, clinging to the drop-off on our left, found a small spot, and began digging furiously, as if he had dropped off a bone there a couple of years ago. Once he made a nice round hole, he lay down and curled up inside of it. J.B. and I looked on incredulously. This dog wastes no downtime in seeking rest. Perhaps he thought we were there for the night, and he was grabbing first dibs on the side of the mountain. We continued our descent, which was long, and each few yards presented a new mental and physical challenge. Our boots and socks were soaked through. In some places, footholds were limited and at best tenuous. After another 20 minutes of intense, lip-biting focus, we finally came out of the woods onto the ski trail below Jay's summit. The respite was short-lived as we quickly headed back into the woods past a ski company sign that warned that anyone needing rescue beyond this point would be charged. Apparently, we were now past the point where we could enjoy a free accident. The trail continued downhill and presented several slick, sloping slabs, say that three times quickly, of rocks that, at first glance, seemed impossible to descend. Somehow, we figured out ways. Of course, B.J. just plowed ahead as if he were on the Bonneville salt flats. At this point, with everything I owned completely soaked, mud clinging to the bottom of my boots, and fear gripping my throat like a tourniquet, I declared the long trail officially unfair. This trail, somewhat romantically touted by the GMC as a footpath in the wilderness, is described in the guidebook as rugged and primitive. 
but the unwritten implication is that it can be hiked by anyone with the time and inclination. The reality that we were experiencing was more like, this so-called trail was specifically built for suicidal maniacs bent on self-destruction, and anyone who anticipates a long and fulfilling life need not join in the mayhem. We reached the bottom in the form of a small stagnant stream and scampered across and up the opposite embankment. The trail started a steady and winding uphill climb toward what we figured just had to be the Woodward Shelter. It was nearing 6.30 p.m. and I entertained thoughts of throwing down my pack onto the shelter floor, digging out my sleep map and sleeping bag and collapsing for the night. The heck with water, dinner, my hammock and finding out the Yankee score. At last we climbed up an incline and the shelter was in sight. Laurel Woodward is a three-sided raised shelter facing a fire pit and a grassy flat area. A male hiker was sitting in the shelter and he greeted us heartily, seemingly glad to finally have some company. Of course, he was dry, had already laid out his gear, hung up his wet clothes, and eaten dinner. We, on the other hand, were two exhausted, smelly hiker rats with dog, with only one thought in mind, stopping. The hiker tried to make small conversation as J.B. and I took off our packs and started to think about where we would sleep. We exchanged greetings with him and then set about our camp tasks. First J.B. laid the spoon he found on the wooden bench in front of the shelter, figuring he had carried it far enough. I made several survey trips around the area to locate a suitable hammock spot. I didn't know where the energy was coming from and perhaps the thought of staying in the shelter was incentive enough to string the hammock. J.B. declared that he would erect his tent on the flat, grassy area in front of and just to the left of the shelter. I found a good spot just off the access trail and worked on setting up. In the meantime, the wind had picked up considerably and began to gust, emitting a roaring sound as it whistled through the trees, and I forgot to pack the storm shutters. After setting up my hammock and tying the rain fly down low due to the high winds, I took off my wet hiking suit changed into my long sleeve shirt, fleece pullover, and long johns, and hung the wet stuff in the shelter along with my pack. J.B. had the tent up, and we hiked down to the water source and filtered water for dinner and for tomorrow's hike. I couldn't believe I was still able to function, and thought of pinching myself to see if I was dreaming, but decided it was too much effort. We finally sat in the shelter and cooked our dinners while B.J. racked out along the back wall. The male hiker, appearing to be in his upper fifties, was from Maine and was section hiking the long trail in thirds. He had left his car in Jonesville and was planning to end the first leg of his hike there. After a while, I handed up our food bags for J.B. to hang and went back to my hammock to make some more adjustments and hop in for the night. J.B. and B.J. climbed into their tent. I lay in my hammock, listening to the wind howl and thinking about this incredible day. That was the last thing I remembered before I fell asleep, as if I had been hit by a tranquilizer dart. A short while later, a young couple and their small dog came into camp from the south. B.J. growled, and J.B. heard them go by, but didn't get out of his tent. They headed for the shelter. Positives for the day. I was still breathing. The water source at J. Camp was good. We made it to Laura Woodward, which put us in good position to finish the hike. B.J. was a terrific hiker. Neither one of us had any significant injuries. I proved to myself I could handle extreme physical adversity. Negatives. It rained steadily on Jay Peak. Visibility on and near the summit was very low. 
The trail was in horrible shape with tons of mud and wet, slippery rocks. My muscles cramped repeatedly and threatened my ability to continue. The J Peak Summit Station was closed, thus denying us an opportunity for refuge. This has been a presentation of LongTrailPodcast.com. We hope you will return and enjoy future podcasts about Vermont's Long Trail. Until then, this is Ruff of Rough and Tumble, Long Trail, End to End, 2003.